Hi, John. How are you today? Hi, Elliot. I'm doing fine. Yourself? Uh, I'm okay. I'm okay. We have a rainy fall day here, but uh, but that's okay. We've had a beautiful stretch of weather, so you got to get a little rain, too. Well, I'll be in your backyard next week, so. <laughs> that's true. So what would you like to talk about? Well, you know, um, one of the things that we've talked about this offline, being in the AML space, um, dealing with sanctions issues sort of came late to us. Not that we didn't think it was important, but it wasn't seen as part of the sort of compliance regimen, if you will. But that obviously has changed for a number of years. And what I thought was interesting, because it references both compliance and and, um, multiple agency enforcement action, is the recent action against what I'm uh, I'm going to say is um, the the name of the bank is uh, uh, Moshrek Bank, um, and this was a settlement done with the New York State Department of Financial Services, the Fed, and OFAC on a series of violations to Sudanese sanctions, which actually no longer are in place. So I thought that was a an interesting uh, series of uh, facts in this particular enforcement action. Yes, I saw that it was it was interesting. Uh, went back. Um, it actually covered uh, so the critical time period that they looked at was 2005 to 2009. So we're talking about uh, quite um, uh, quite a while ago that this was still churning through, which leads me to believe that there were some other things going on, and this had been uh, uh, hanging around to be used if needed. Right, and. Part of the issue was um, the, the payment message. Well, I guess it was a London branch, number one, and they had over 1,700 payments going through institutions in the U.S., and that was obviously a violation of the Sudanese sanctions. And they say in, in, in the OFAC enforcement action, they said because the payment messages were sent to the U.S. institutions, but they didn't include the originating Sudanese bank, uh, Moshrek's correspondence couldn't interdict the payments. And so obviously that was part of the problem. So they looked at a series of issues. You're right, it goes back that many years. Series of aggravating factors and mitigating factors. Uh, pretty short statement from OFAC. It's three pages, but I think it does give you some insight into um, you know, both what can help you with a case and part of the mitigating factors is cooperation. We've known that for a long time. But part of the aggravation, obviously, is that at least according to the enforcement action, and this has been agreed to by the bank, some senior level branch employees had actual knowledge of the conduct, giving rise to the violations, which is obviously pretty important to note. Yes. Um, in terms of their uh, uh, settlement, well, I shouldn't, it's not exactly settlement, but uh, the Fed order is a cease and desist right. uh, pursuant to a consent order. Um, and there, there is, uh, on a looking forward basis, there's commitments to do a number of things in terms of uh, U.S. law compliance program in the next 90 days. They have to submit an acceptable program. Um, they, you know, have to be subject to an annual, pardon me, assessment. Um, a lot of things we've seen in other uh, orders where compliance has failed. But uh, again, this is all um, all of the stuff in the Fed order is really about OFAC compliance. Um, there isn't anything about, you know, what you what you think of as sort of the standard uh, five pillar compliance program. This is all focused on the sanctions component. Right. And, and to, to your point, they um, this investigation uh, started in 2015. 
And the reason for the mitigation is the series of things that were done before that and high, highlighted is uh, increasing their compliance function staff by over 400 uh, percent. Cl- they closed all the U.S. dollar accounts way back in 2009. They established a requirement organization wide for originating bank and customer information to be included in those payment messages. And I think that's good. Transition from manual screening to automated. And I thought this was interesting. They retained a law firm uh, back in 2014 to conduct an OFAC risk assessment and gap analysis. So they clearly did a lot of things to uh, use their words to, to mitigate, but to obviously fix the problem. And those are clear considerations that, that OFAC and the other uh, agencies involved. New York State Department was part of this as well. Uh, look at in terms of making a decision on the ultimate fine and penalty. Yeah, you had uh, mentioned earlier the fact that uh, there were employees who were, they acknowledged that there were employees who were aware of the misconduct. They also make a commitment uh, in the consent order to uh, not employ any of those people, retain uh, in the future directly or indirectly any of those folks who were involved and uh, were aware of it, um, and also to fully cooperate uh, with um, uh, any future uh, efforts by the regulators to pursue the uh, individual employees. Um, and as we know, um, in uh, egregious cases, the regulators will often seek uh, an order that says that the, uh, those folks can no longer work for an insured depository institution in the United States. So right. there's right. certainly plenty of hint in here that there's more to come for those individuals uh, beyond uh, what's happened with the institution. Which in my mind, that should definitely happen given that they had actual knowledge. So the last thing I'll mention very quickly is OFAC does reference uh, their 2019 framework on compliance uh, that I know all the um, uh, you know, OFAC practitioners have been looking very carefully at and utilizing for training purposes. So the fact that this is highlighted again in this action I think it's always good to remind our colleagues, if you haven't already looked at the framework and done a gap analysis to your own institution or your clients, this is a good time to do that. Right. As you have said many, many times, um, the value of these types of public orders for those people who are not the targets of them is it's a chance to just do a quick um, gap analysis or, uh, you know, take a look and go, hmm, do could we have those problems? And if so, you know, dispatch people to figure out if you do. Exactly. Uh, so um, uh, I'll do the shameless plug and then you can do another shameless plug and then I'm going to do our calendar. So the sh- first shameless plug, uh, if you like this, uh, we do it most weeks and uh, we do a lot of other great content. You can find all the podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, please stay with us. And uh, if you've got topics or things that you're interested in that we could produce content on, certainly feel free to uh, reach out to John or to me and we'll uh, certainly uh, take a look at that. Right. And next, and next week um, on uh, the uh, 16th, the 16th on Tuesday, um, we're going to be having a webinar. Uh, we think it's going to be the first of its kind, certainly in our space for quite a while and that, or if, if at all, and that's having law enforcement in the financial sector talk to us, uh, about how they can both sides can improve their investigative abilities by working together and what some of those 
some of those issues are. So uh, criminal investigations for FIs, how-to for law enforcement in the financial sector on November 16th. And you can register by going to our website. And the calendar item is John and I will be with you next week on the 19th. But we are going to take uh, a long Thanksgiving holiday, so we're going to be off on the 26th. There will not be an episode on the 26th, but we'll be back with you then on December 3rd. So everybody have a great weekend. John, you stay healthy, and uh, I'll see you here in Milwaukee next week. Sounds good. Take care. Stay safe. Bye-bye.